0: Let's pray. Father, I ask for the presence and power of your spirit in all of us as we listen to your word. May we hear uh, what you would have us to hear. May we receive it and may we do and live as you would have us to do and live. I ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. One of the more famous opening lines of all of literature comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The preacher, the name is actually in Hebrew kohelet, actually means the one who assembles, the one who convenes, the one who calls people together in order to tell them something. I have something I want you to hear. I have something I want you to know. And he calls the people together and says, here's what I want you to know. Everything's meaningless. Everything's vanity. Know that. But what gives him the right to tell us that? Why? Why can he tell us that? It says because he's he's tried it. He's tried Everything on earth that is supposed to infuse life with meaning, to fill life with something solid, lasting, something he can cling to and know that he will not lose it. He says, I have tried it and it has failed. Everything I have found on earth is vain, vapid, empty. The thin breath that one sees for a moment on a cold morning before it fades away. In chapter 2, he gives three common lives, three common pursuits that are thought to give life meaning. He first speaks of the pursuit of pleasure. And this is not the wild, careless pursuit, the heedless pursuit of all bright, shiny things. Rather, this is careful consideration of what would produce most pleasure most pleasure that would last. What would satisfy the passions most fully. And he would diligently pursue those things. And he says, that is vain. He next moves to the pursuit of wisdom. If the Epicurean life does not satisfy, perhaps the contemplative life will the life pursuing knowledge, understanding, education, the one that makes me to be a learned person. Perhaps that will give me meaning in life. But he says this too proves vain. He next pursues work, perhaps the active life is what is needed, the life driven to accomplish great deeds, to establish works that will stand as a memorial, things that will benefit the world, philanthropic works, good works. Perhaps this will give me meaning. And he says, at the end of that, I find that it too is vain. It is empty. But what makes them vain? What makes them empty? It is the same thing, he tells us, for all three of those pursuits. By the way, we could also see those things as stages of life, right? The young man's pursuit of pleasure. The middle-aged man's pursuit of work and activity to establish something. And the older man's pursuit of wisdom. This is in all stages of those life. In all stages, I find emptiness and vanity. And I find it is empty and vain for the same reason. All three of those. What makes it empty? Death. Temporality. The fleeting nature of the things being pursued and of my own life make them empty. Pleasure does not and cannot last. It does not come when I call it and it does not stay as long as I desire it i cannot have it for long and it does not impart meaning on my few short years wisdom learning perhaps here we might say is something that lasts but the preacher says no where does the wise man end in the same place as the fool in the grave i cannot obtain all wisdom And learning, my grasp on it is tenuous, and so is my grasp on life. Work activity also does not last. It will, in the end, get taken over by someone else when I die, and it will someday crumble and fall. I just read an article this past week about the CEO of Toys R Us. Started the the company right after World War II. And became spectacularly successful. At one point, the highest paid CEO in America. He lived long enough to see his company hit bankruptcy and almost long enough to see all the stores close. And it's not just commercial endeavors and work. I have known pastors. I have known men who build ministries doing good work. Good men who've devoted their life to ministry to reach the end of their ability to work and before their death to see their churches crumble and fall, to see their ministries end in what we would call ruin. After years of pouring their lives into good work, it didn't last. Work itself is temporal both in our ability to do it and in the product itself. And the preacher is brutally honest about what he sees. Everything under the sun decays and dies. And these can, there can be no lasting meaning found in it. We try. We have From the beginning, there have been attempts. The three he lists are, are very common in, in, in the pursuit of philosophy, of, of ways of trying to infuse meaning into life. And he rips the rose-colored glasses off of us and says it doesn't work. Ecclesiastes is not the only place that carries this theme in the Bible. Lo and behold, our psalm this morning does as well. And I will remind you, I do not pick these passages. I give what's given to me in the lectionary. Why should I fear the wicked who compass me round about? Why should I be jealous of those who amass fortunes? They'll never have enough to redeem their life from death. The wise man dies just as the ignorant and foolish die. Man is like the beasts that perish. Further on the reading, because if you don't have the whole psalm, it says that we are like sheep, That like sheep. They are appointed to die and death shall be their shepherd. Our gospel reading carries this theme as well in the story of the the rich fool, the man who seeks meaning and security and pleasure in the abundance of his goods, and God looks at him and says, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Well, we're three for three, cheery passages all, from our lectionary today. Might we find some relief in our epistle reading? Yes, we actually do. Thanks be to God. But not by avoiding the topic of death. Colossians does not try to get us away from the idea of death. But it does not tell us to fear it, and rather it encourages us to embrace it and in some way run towards it, to make it our own. And rather than finding death to deprive life of meaning, it grabs the concept of death and uses it as a way of finding meaning in life. Death appears in the first three words of our reading this morning, put To death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Listen as well to what comes right before this. The first four verses of chapter number three. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Ecclesiastes is right. The preacher is right. There is nothing under the sun that will give us meaning. Nothing created carries meaning in and of itself. It is contingent, dependent on something else. It is dependent upon that which created it. It is not self sustaining and in and of itself, left to itself, it will not last. And we cannot wring from it that which it does not possess. If we need meaning that is lasting, that is transcendent, we must find it in something that in and of itself is lasting and transcendent. It is not found in anything under the sun, but rather it is found in the Son himself, Christ, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, and the one who came to us to share with us his life, which is lasting, which is meaningful, which is meaning. And so we were invited to receive His life in baptism. Our reading last week from chapter 2 says, Enter into His death in baptism and be raised again in Him. Receive that life from Him. We were invited to do that. And we were invited to put to death the life that is separated from His eternal transcendent life. What does this look like? Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Great, then. Don't do bad things? That's that what I'm, that's what I'm asked, asked to do? If I don't do bad things, then I am receiving the transcendent life of Christ? How, how does that? Work Well, let's let's think about it for a moment. Put to death sexual immorality. Not put to death sex, put to death sexual immorality, which we define as any sexual act outside of one man and one woman who are bound together in marriage. Now, our argument against those who disagree with that definition is not simply that the Bible says that that is what sex should be. Though that is true. And if that's all we had, that is sufficient because we believe that the Bible is our guide to life and tells us how God would have us to live. But there is more to it. There is a a deeper level, or at least another level, where sex outside of one man and one woman... Bound together in marriage removes the transcendent meaning that God put into sex and makes it a thing of earth. Because this is transcendent, it is something of a mystery, but I think there are ways of pursuing understanding of it. We humans are made in God's image, one of the found, the foundational fact about who we are we are people made in God's image. This itself is a mystery which we cannot fully explain, but at least it means to some extent that we reflect him in various ways. For example, we say often in talking about being made in the image of God that we are creative, like God is creative. And we usually mean creative in the sense of we use our imagination to create beauty and art, Beautiful things just like God put beautiful things, artistic things into His creation that we see around us and we reflect that as we do beautiful, good works of art. And this is good and this is true. This is absolutely true. But God is creative in the sense that He creates, that He makes, that He made all things that he brought all things into being, the greatest of his creations on earth being making humans in his own image, installing his image into human beings. And he made us creative in a very similar way. He made us creative. He made us with the ability to bring into being new images of God to bring into being new people and the way he gave us to do that is through sex. So we reflect God but not just in our creative capacities that is true so we reflect him in our ability to produce new images of God but not just in this creative capacity but also in who he is himself. He is Trinitarian. He is a unity, a oneness, one God existing in three persons. At one time, a oneness and also an otherness existing in an eternal bond of love. And from this bond of love, from this one God, who is also other. From this bond of love came the creation of all things, including His image in us. Humans reflect this oneness and otherness. We see this in the account of Eve being taken out of Adam's side. Not a separate creation, but from him, from his being, comes another being. They are one, equally human, equally images of God, equally valuable, yet they are other. Man and woman are not the same. They are human, equal in that, equal in their value, and carrying the image of God, but they are different. They are one, but they are other. And God brings them together in an eternal bond of love as man and wife. And they become one flesh capable of creating a new image of God. The fact that not every coming together of husband and wife produces another image of God does not disprove this truth. It is a reminder, one, that we live in a broken world and also that life ultimately does not come from us, but it comes from God. He is the decider of life. But in this family, in what God works together and in the way He has given us to make children, to bring His image into the world, we see Him, something transcendent. He has put that into us, into our relationship, both in the creative capacity and the reflection of who He is. To remove sex from the context of one man, one woman brought together in the bond of marriage is to separate it from its meaning in God, to make it a thing of earth, and to commit idolatry. And Paul says, put that life to death. Do not separate things, the things God gives The good gifts, God gives do not separate them from their heavenly meaning. Put your mind on things above, not on things of earth. See the meaning God has given these things. We can say the same with the covetous life, which Paul mentions. Seeking to acquire goods for their own sake, for our security. Loving these goods, monies, and the things that it can provide for us. Seeing our help in those things, rather than seeing them as gifts given from God, to enjoy them in Him, and like God, to become a giver of good gifts ourselves, giving away what we have not having them for ourselves, but the sharing of them with others and so seeing the gifts that God gives us, the things that we acquire as the ability to love one another and to share them with one another. Put to death an earthly life disconnected from the transcendent life that is full of meaning that is found in Christ. put that to death and then Paul says take up put on the life of kindness love of humility of honesty how do we do that how do we develop that is it an act of our will the will is involved but listen to the end of our colossians reading Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Sing praise to Him. Cultivate a grateful heart. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So what, do we just live a pious life? Right? Well, y- Yes. Live in the Word of God. He gave gave us this Himself in Christ and in His Word to help us build up, to help us give the strength to put to death the things of earth. To put on the things of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I am grateful to my wife who recently has reminded me of the need to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly. As a, as a preacher, I spend a lot of time in the word preparing to preach. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's possible as someone who studies the word to let it just be an, a thing, part of my job, the need I have to spend time listening to the word for myself. Let it dwell in me richly. To sing those praises to God. To meditate on it. To be grateful for what I find. So that when I read Ecclesiastes, I can say, thanks be to God. Because I know it's what's good for me. And to do all that I do to the glory of God. That doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to do and just say you're doing it to the glory of God. It won't do to shout sola deo gloria as you walk out the door of the bank you just robbed. Robbing banks isn't glorifying to God. Obey Him. And as you go about your day obeying Him, loving Him, go about your work with your mind towards heavenly things, recognizing God has given this to you. Do it to His glory with our eyes and our hearts directed towards Him. And we will find that the three things that the preacher despaired of are given back to us. We will find pleasure in him, now to some degree, but with the promise that there will be pleasures at his right hand forevermore. We will find wisdom. with the the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, we will find wisdom. And we will find meaning in our activity as we do it to His honor and glory. And we will find that this is work that lasts. Maybe not on earth, but He says, store up your treasures in heaven. We are moving from earthly means to heavenly things as we live on earth. And death cannot take that away. Doug mentioned it, I think, last week. Our life is in Christ and our physical death is a mere blip in our existence. That's not the end. We have an eternal life in Christ. Set your minds on things above and not on things of earth.